0: Hey, if you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. New Year's, whenever it rolls around, it's a time where people are making resolutions. They're thinking through what they want to accomplish in the new year. And there's always different motivations for why people would make resolutions. Maybe it's something that they've always wanted to do, like a bucket list item. Maybe it's something that uh, they want to be adventurous about. Maybe it's a challenge. They want to challenge themselves And try to accomplish something very difficult. And I don't know about you. Looking back on this last year, I wonder what the hardest thing you had to do this last year was. What was the most difficult, most painful, most challenging thing that you went through this last year? I wonder what's the most difficult thing you've ever been through, period. It's the most difficult experience you've ever gone through. If you've ever gone through something that's challenging, when you go through it, you'll feel that sense of, I don't think I'm going to make it, right? You're trying to keep your head above water and you're feeling like it's not going to work. I'm not going to make it through this. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of, Lord, if you don't give me the strength to accomplish this, to make it through, I'm not going to survive. If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone. Biblically, you're not alone. The disciples felt that way. You, they look at Jesus and they say, Jesus, if you're asking us to do this thing, you're going to have to give us greater faith and greater strength to be able to live out what you're asking. But what they're talking about is not a New Year's resolution. What they're talking about is not some feat of strength. What they're talking about is what I believe is one of the most challenging realities in the whole world. That's why I think the disciples respond the way that they do when Jesus tells them, This is how you must live. We find Jesus' words in Luke 17. We're just going to read three through five, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Jesus says, be on your guard. This is Luke 17, verse three. Be on your guard or watch out for yourselves. Be careful, be on guard. If your brother sins or sister sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day, And returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. God, these words that you spoke so long ago, they ring in our hearts, they ring in our minds. Even now as we think about partaking in communion and the the reality of broken relationships all around us. We think about reconciliation that we desire so badly, and yet some people don't make it possible for peace. And yet we are called to forgive. Father, I'm I'm so grateful for this church family. It's one of the most loving, unified, gracious group of people that I've ever been a part of, and I'm so grateful for your peace that connects all of us, unifies all of us, But even in such a loving church, such a loving environment, I know that all of us have some form of a struggle with regard to forgiveness, with regard to bitterness or resentment. And as we enter into this new year, Father, I pray that we would would tackle this issue first. We would not let this fester in our souls. And so I pray that you would open our eyes. Holy Spirit, open our eyes this morning, that we'd behold wonderful things from your law, that we would see and comprehend and understand and that we would then move forward applying what it is that we're learning. Even today, before the sun goes down, that we would make a phone call, we would reach out, we would plan something on the calendar to get together with somebody and and make peace and pursue reconciliation. Father, more than anything, may we live out the gospel with one another. May others see Christ in us, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act, in the way that we feel. May we be gospel-focused and gospel-centered in our relationships. So, be our guide, be our helper. Convict, challenge, encourage, comfort, and lead us this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This uh, Christmas break, over the break, I did kind of like a little deep dive study on forgiveness. I read several books on forgiveness. I uh, tried to just kind of examine what the scriptures say and specifically in my own life, how that works itself out. And there were so many helpful books. There were so many helpful chapters. I think sometimes um, it's not a whole book that's helpful. It's, it's a paragraph. It's a chapter. It's maybe even just a sentence that you remember and kind of sink your teeth into. There was one chapter in one book in particular, it was a book by Tim Keller called Forgiveness. Uh, it was very helpful on just the application. He, he did a deep dive into this verse. And so I really want to, to use some of the things that he said in that chapter. And I would encourage you to go read that specific chapter uh, in that book uh, on Luke 17. Very, very helpful. And so he did one thing. I, I want to zoom in on one thing when we get there. But I want to do three things this morning I wanna look at this text, number one, and just ask, what do we see in this text? Just make observations about it. Secondly, I want us to ask practical ways that we can apply this text to our lives today. And then thirdly, I want to see the motivation and the resources for applying this in our lives, how we are to live this out in this very moment. So first, let's look at the text together. Let's just observe. Let's walk through it briefly. It's a very short section, especially for what we've been covering in the book of Daniel, where we're getting chapters at a time. It's a very short section, very small a couple of verses, but they're so full with truth that is very, very convicting. Jesus starts by saying, be on your guard. If your brother sins, Rebuke him. So notice, number one, we're talking about brother or sister, right? We're talking about family of God. These people are in the family of God. Brother or sister, if they sin, rebuke them. You go to them. You don't leave it. You go to them. You confront them. You tell them. You show them. This is similar to what Matthew 18 tells us. You go to them. Dale Ralph Davis says, rebuking means that you have the courage to confront the offender and not gossip to your neighbor about them. So rebuking is the opposite of gossip. Instead of telling others about the offense, you go tell them about the offense. You go speak to them. And Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns seven times and says, I repent, you forgive him. So Jesus is saying, this is a common experience. Seven times in a day, it's happening frequently. It's often. Again, Dale Ralph Davis says, for Jesus' disciples... Forgiveness is not to be a unique occurrence, but an ongoing practice. Our problem with Jesus's words here are that we are often too spineless to rebuke and too resentful to forgive. But Jesus requires of us both courage to rebuke and compassion to forgive. The Christian life, as usual, demands both guts and goodness. In this segment, Jesus is assuming that the church is a sinful people. Folks who need to practice rebuking, repenting, and forgiving. So he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, you forgive him. And if it keeps on going time and time again, even seven times in a day, you, re- you go to him. You, if he repents, you forgive him. You speak to him out of love and you reconcile. Notice it's not an option. It's not an option. If you want to forgive, you forgive. No, it's a command. You have to forgive. And we struggle with this because we feel when there is an offense done to us, when we are harboring resentment about that offense, we end up feeling superior to that other person. That's why it's hard to forgive. It's hard to take that offense away because we are the wronged ones. We have that sense of I am superior to you. You hurt me. You bow to me. I'm above you. And that's why Jesus says, look at his opening statement. Verse three, be on your guard. My Bible says, be on your guard. Some of your translations might say, watch out for yourselves. It's very interesting that he says that. Be aware of yourself when he's talking about somebody else doing the sinning. Somebody else has sinned and Jesus says, that's when you need to be most on guard about yourself. It seems counterintuitive. When somebody wrongs us, we tend to focus on them and pay great attention to them. But Jesus is saying here, when somebody does wrong to you, that's when you need to be looking out for yourself, looking to your own heart. Why is this the case? Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us why it is so imperative that we look out for ourselves when we've been wronged by somebody. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. The author of Hebrews says, Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Seeing to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up causing trouble. And by it, many would be defiled. Many would be defiled. The author of Hebrews says, There is a possibility that a root of bitterness would grow in your heart and spring up and defile you. A root of bitterness. That's such a perfect picture. Uh, I remember... When I was in high school, my mom told me that I was supposed to weed the front yard, go into the front yard, dig out all the weeds, dig them out from the roots, and then I could go hang out with my friends. And I remember thinking, okay, I want to go hang out with my friends. I will do the weeding very quickly. And I went through, no joke, and I just took scissors and cut the top off the weeds and then just kind of put the dirt over the top of the weeds and said, I'm done. See, clean, you can't see any weeds, we're good to go. And uh, I didn't do a good job because there were little molehills over where all of the weeds were. And so my mom just kind of moved them open and said, no, no, there's still roots here and it's going to grow back stronger. You can't do it that way. You have to dig deep. You have to get down into the roots if you're going to take the, the weed out. And if you leave the roots, it doesn't just grow back. It grows back stronger. So the author of Hebrews says, if you don't deal with the resentment and the bitterness in your heart, it's going to grow roots in your heart. It's going to make its way down deep into your soul and cling on to you. And it's going to change you. Now, believing the best about us, I don't think that we intentionally try to grow roots of bitterness in our heart. I don't think we say, let's, let's fuel the bitterness. I want to be a bitter person. I don't think that we intentionally do that. So my question is, how do the roots begin? How do the roots of bitterness start? I think there's many answers to that. But I think one answer is, when the offense happens, I think it's really hard to admit how angry we really are. When the offense happens, when we're hurt, I think we want to, for whatever motivation it might be, maybe we want to think that we're better than that, that we aren't easily offended, that we have thick skin. I don't know what it might be, but I think we tend to feel, yes, you hurt me, but I'm not really that mad. And we don't really sit in that moment and stare at our own own hearts and figure out, no, 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 I was really hurt and I am really angry. And I think because of that, if we don't see the anger that's growing in our hearts, then it starts to take root. It turns into bitterness. And that bitterness can then sometimes surprisingly lash out. I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship where that's happened. Somebody's hurt you and you try to just kind of say, "Mm, no big deal. It wasn't that bad. And you try to uh, just assume we're going to just let love cover this and move on. And you don't really deal with how angry you really are, how hurt you really are. And then all of a sudden something happens. They say something and you just lash out and you wonder, where did that come from? The other person might even say that. What happened? Why are you so mad? And you realize, oh, there's a root of bitterness that's grown down deep into my heart. I didn't even know. I wasn't even aware of it. You can't see it, right? You can't see the roots growing down. I wasn't even aware. Sometimes this kind of bitterness and resentment can live itself out in our lives by saying things like, I forgive you, but I could never forget. It's like saying, I'm not going to seek revenge, but I also wouldn't mind if you went through some huge downfall and got hurt. That's not real forgiveness. That's why Jesus says, watch out for yourself. The author of Hebrews says, watch out, see to it, be careful. This is something that we need to be on guard and vigilant about. It also means it's something that we need to assume that we struggle with. We need to assume that we are more resentful and more bitter than we think we are. Okay, can we assume that about ourselves? We are more resentful and more bitter and less forgiving than we think we are. And unless you dig down deep to see the roots and to pull them out, you're going to have all sorts of anger, rage, resentment, and bitterness inside of your heart. And the author of Hebrews says that will defile you. That bitterness changes you. It defiles you. Very interesting. The word wrath, our English word wrath, comes from an Anglo-Saxon word that the same root word as the root word for wreath. So wrath and wreath come from the same root word. Meaning, when you are wrathful, you know, a wreath is all twisted up. You're twisted up with anger when you're wrathful. Wrath twists you out of shape. That same root word for wrath and wreath is also a root word that we don't really use anymore in common vernacular, other than when we're talking about Lord of the Rings, when we're talking about wraiths, right? So we've got wrath, wreath, and wraith. They're often the same root word. What is a wraith? A wraith is just a fancy word for a ghost or a spirit. You remember the legend of ghosts, right? The the legend of a wraith, the legend of spirits, is that when something bad happens to you, you die in a house and it was some terrible murder, that ghost sits there and it haunts that house, not forgetting the evil that was done to it. So wrath, wraith, wraith, they're all coming from that same root word that are describing the defiling that takes place in our hearts if we... Let the root of bitterness grow. If we don't deal with our wrath through forgiveness, wrath turns us into a wraith, slowly but surely, a restless spirit, into someone controlled by the past, letting it haunt you, and you haunting others because of it. So the question is, how are we going to keep that from happening? How are we going to stop those offenses from growing a root of bitterness in our hearts? What must we do? So we've examined the text. Now I want to answer that question. What must we do? How are we to keep our guards up? We must forgive. We must forgive well. So there are many components of forgiveness. Again, I want to pull out three that I think Tim Keller did a great job pulling out from this text. Three different, and from other texts in the scriptures, three different aspects of how we are to forgive. And they are, let me just say right up front, they are so challenging. That's why I've been praying all week long for us this morning because I believe that as we go through these, if we were to truly live these out with one another and with those outside of our church that maybe we're struggling with reconciling, I I think this would dramatically, drastically alter our relationships, but it's gonna take work and it's really hard to do. So three things, three aspects of how we can practically apply forgiveness to one another even today. Number one, if you are going to forgive and you're gonna forgive well, Number one, you must identify with the wrongdoer. If you're going to forgive and you're going to forgive well, you must identify with the wrongdoer. Go back to Luke 17. Jesus says, be on your guard, verse three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If you see somebody in sin, if they hurt you, you go to them, you tell them how they hurt you. And if they repent, you forgive them. That's as easy as it needs to be, as simple and straightforward. Now, some people would read that and they'd say, so if my brother or sister doesn't repent, I am not called by God to forgive. Turn just really briefly to Mark, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 would not say that. Mark 11, verse 25, Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, you forgive. If you have, listen, anything against anyone. Anything against anyone you forgive so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. Whenever you stand praying, so you're praying by yourself. You're not talking. This isn't a rebuke. You haven't gone to anybody. You're praying by yourself. You're talking to God and you're considering maybe the root of bitterness that's in your heart. You're considering offense that somebody might have done anything against anyone. Somebody hurt you or you hurt them, whatever's going on. That's why Luke 17, when it says, if you confront and they repent, you forgive them. That's not at odds. We don't need to pit that against Mark 11, verse 25. Real forgiveness always hopes for a full restoration of the offender and the, the relationship together. You want that to grow back together. But as is often the case when you go to somebody and you say you hurt me and they are defensive or they say, well, that wasn't my fault, that's your fault, and the relationship is still strained, that does not mean that Luke 17 is giving you an allowance to not forgive. Mark 11:25 25 says you still forgive in your heart. You're always called to forgive. Why? Well, a number of reasons, but one of them clearly here in verse 3 of Luke 17. This is your brother. This is your sister. They're in the family of God. They're standing shoulder to shoulder with you in the family of God. You might say, yeah, but they don't really feel like my brother or sister. They actually feel like my enemy. Well, God calls you to love your enemy as well. God calls you to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's why I think it's very helpful to think through when somebody offends you, the first step, one of the first steps that you can take in working towards true forgiveness is identifying with the wrongdoer. Now, this is not saying that you have done what the wrongdoer has done. But what this is saying is in seed form, what they did to hurt you resides in your heart as well. What they did to offend you, often in that moment we think, well, I would never. That's so alienating. That's so prideful. That's distancing yourself. Instead of saying, I could see a scenario where I do the exact same thing. I am not beyond you or above you. I would do the same thing. But so often we say, no, 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 I'm beyond that. I would never do that. And that's why there's conflict. That's why there's conflict. There's a helpful illustration of this in that book on forgiveness. Think about uh, when you go to Disneyland. You know, there's those uh, cartoonists that are sitting there and they draw caricatures of you. You think of a caricature. What's a caricature? A caricature, you sit down and they take some aspect of you that is noticeable, that's prominent, and they kind of make it into something funny, right? They kind of exaggerate it. They focus on that one thing and they make a caricature out of you based off of that one thing. When we're in conflict, when we're struggling with relationships, we tend to do that with the person that hurt us. We tend to make a caricature out of them, and we just focus on that one thing that they did to hurt us. We zoom in on that, we zero in on that, and it's a one-dimensional relationship. It's a one-dimensional view. All that we know them for and all that we see them through is that lens of you hurt me this way. Think about it. If somebody lies to you, It's so easy at that moment to just go, you're a liar. And now I don't trust you for anything you do, anything you say, because I've caricatured you now as a liar. But we don't do that to ourselves. If somebody comes to you and says, I think you lied, or I think that that was not entirely truthful, it can be very easy in that moment for us to go, "Oh, you know, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. But that's not like me. You don't label yourself as a liar. You don't go, yep, I'm a liar. No, you say, that's not like me. That's not what I normally do. I'm so sorry. Here was the reason why I did that. Here was the the background. You need to understand. So we give ourselves grace. We make ourselves three-dimensional human beings where we have other aspects of who we are. But when we're offended, we look at the person, we say, you lied, you're a liar, and we only see one-dimensional caricature of who they are. This is so dangerous. By the way, parents, this is dangerous with your kids. I'm guilty of this all the time, where I look at my kids, specifically one kid, you know who, and I just look and I go, what are you thinking? And in my mind, and I've said it sometimes verbally, and I always have to go back and apologize, and I stop staying, it's not in my vocabulary anymore, I still think it and I feel it, but I think, I would never do that. I would never do that. Now, the moment that I say that, not even an offense. I don't think my kids are purposely trying to maliciously hurt me or offend me. But they do foolish things because they're kids. And when they do, if I look at them and I have this disdainful superiority complex over them of, I would never do that. I have just distanced myself from my kids. And my kids now feel like I'm a fool. I'm an idiot. And my dad's way, way better than me. Instead of me saying, I just, I'm a fool just like you. I need just as much forgiveness as you do. I need just as much grace as you do. If we do not identify ourselves with the wrongdoer, we will alienate ourselves, distance ourselves, we'll break that relationship even more. This is so challenging to do because we were hurt by them, so we never want to be like that. But brothers and sisters, any offense that's done to you, you could do the exact same thing and worse to other people. You can't. Because it's in your heart. It resides in you. We are all filled with sinful, evil depravity. And so if you choose not to identify with them, you pull back, you alienate yourself, and now you become superior over them. And that can feel really good. I'm better than you. I would never do that. You're below me. You're beneath me. But that will always lead to bitterness, self-righteousness, and pride. Always. One pastor says it this way. Resentment is bittersweet. If we did not cherish it, we wouldn't let it go. We would let it go if we didn't cherish it. We'd love it and we would let it go if we didn't. What sort of rewards do we get from our resentment? Why do we keep score? Well, first, it makes us feel superior to the person we resent. Also, we enjoy the feeling of hurt that that memory kindles. We feel noble and worthy as the decent person who was wrongly hurt. Resentments serve a double purpose. They give us treasured pain, and they give us a chance to justify ourselves. Yet they always depress us, rob us of gratitude, and it sneaks into other relationships as well. Another pastor says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. Notice what what happens in that moment of hurt. I exclude the enemy, the person who hurt me. I exclude them from a community of humanity. I say, you're not normal. And I exclude myself from a community of sinners. I'm not that bad. He continues, no one can be in the presence of the God, of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion. When one knows that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, One is free to discover that the person's humanity, discover that person's humanity, and imitate God's love for them. And when one knows that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself as a sinner and rediscover their own depravity. So if you want to forgive, and if you want to forgive well, number one, you must identify with the wrongdoer. You're not above them, they're not beneath you. These aren't things that you would never do. You're a sinner in need of grace, just like they are. Number two, if you are to forgive and forgive well, you must inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer yourself. Inwardly pay the debt of the wrongdoer yourself. Instead of making them pay the debt, you must pay it for them. When Jesus says, be on guard, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He uses a Greek word that means to cancel a debt or to remit a debt. To cancel or remit the debt is to refuse to make that person who owes you pay up. This is the heart of gospel forgiveness. When you are wronged, the offender owes you a debt. They owe you something. Just think about it. If you come over to my house, which you're all welcome to come over to my house after church today. If you come over to my house, we're hanging out, and you break a window. First of all, it won't damage my house too much if you see my house. Secondly, if you break a window and you come to me and you say, I am so sorry, please forgive me. I'll say, of course I forgive you, of course. But forgiveness has happened. We walk away. I harbor no bitterness against you. You're you're good to go, but I've still got a broken window. I still have to pay for the broken window. Somebody has to pay. There's always a cost when wrongdoing is done. There's always a cost. And that cost will fall on someone. Either you choose to pay for it, Make restitution, you can do it. Or I can say, don't worry, I'll pay for it. Now, that's a silly example, but dive deep into hurt that somebody has caused, something that's not a physical broken window, but damage emotionally, they can't repair that damage that they've done. So you need to be able to inwardly in your heart say, I will not take revenge. I refuse to fight against you, but instead I will pay the debt for you. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12 is helpful in this regard because Paul tells us one of the reasons why we don't have to fight for our own uh, offense to, to be overcome. We don't have to fight for ourselves. We can absorb the cost and don't have to settle the score. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone respecting what is good in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God because it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Don't become overcome evil. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome that evil with good. So you don't have to settle the score. You don't have to get even with the other person. If you are sinned against, if somebody hurts you, the second aspect of forgiveness is you must pay that debt inwardly. You must say, I will not demand payment from you. Now, I need to be clear here. This does not mean that you cannot pursue justice. This does not mean forgiveness and justice are not at odds justice and forgiveness our culture will say are completely against each other that's why we live in a cancel culture if you've done something wrong the way that we fix it is we get even with you by canceling you and we can look at that as the church look at the culture and say that's so wrong that's so not gospel but brothers and sisters the church struggles with this as well maybe not in a cancel culture way but in the exact opposite we say as a church When abuse has happened, when there's been wrong that's been done in churches, so many churches have said to the victims, you know what, if you're going to forgive, we're not going to demand justice from this individual. So forgive in your heart, and let's move on as if nothing happened. That's true forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness and justice are not at odds. There have been so many cases of this, just even in the recent couple of years where there's abuse and there's cover-up in the church. Time and time again, this happens. No justice is done because the leaders of the church tell the victims that true forgiveness is to move on without addressing it. That's not justice. That's not true forgiveness. Forgiveness does not mean foregoing justice. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the deep dive on forgiveness this Christmas break, to realize this, that this is so Counterintuitive to what we tend to think, especially in the church. In reality, if you do not forgive first, you cannot actually have true justice. Here's why. If you don't forgive in your heart, before you go to the person to seek out justice, then you will be going to the person with bitterness and anger in your heart. You'll be lashing out at them. You'll be trying to control them. You'll be trying to seek revenge. And that will be met with two things. Number one, two wrongs don't make a right, so it's sinful to do that. But number two, they will feel that. Instead of forgiveness coming to them, they will feel anger, they will become defensive, and you've just lost that person. There's no hope for reconciliation. You can't have justice without forgiveness. Forgiveness is not the opposite of seeking justice. Actually, forgiveness is the prerequisite for it. You've forgiven your heart. You say, I harbor nothing against you. And then you go and you seek to help that person live differently. You don't just turn a blind eye and say, I'm moving on. Forgiveness is inwardly giving up the desire to get even. You're giving the offender, you're paying their debts, you're giving them a gift that they do not deserve. You're voluntarily bringing suffering upon yourself in order to bring about greater good for them. This is a high cost to pay. But ironically, it's an even greater cost to live out bitterness in your heart, to stay bitter and angry. And the high cost of forgiveness, the benefits of that far outweigh whatever it would cost you. Forgiveness is like buying an expensive gift. Maybe you did this uh, over Christmas. Maybe you bought someone an expensive gift on a credit card. Dave Ramsey wouldn't approve, um, but maybe you bought a very expensive gift on a credit card. You swipe the card. When you give the person the gift, that's a transaction. One time, here's the gift. That's like forgiveness. I I choose to forgive. I've given you something very expensive. I've given you something that costs me a lot. And then our relationship has this one-time judicial I have forgiven you but now I go forward and just like a credit card, I'm making payments to pay it down. Now I'm going forward, absorbing the hurt. It pops up in our minds. It pops up in our hearts of the hurt that they cause. And we keep on paying it down. We keep on paying it down. We keep on paying it down. Forgiveness is so hard. It's supernatural. You can't do it naturally. Forgiveness is not. Here's some common misunderstandings of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not excusing the sin. Just eliminating, if you eliminate the need for forgiveness, there's no forgiveness possible. If you say, no, nothing ever happened, just excuse it away. No, no, you need to call sin, sin. Forgiveness is not denying that wrongdoing was done. Again, if you don't call sin, sin, then there's no need for forgiveness. So you cannot forgive unless you say there was hurt, there was sin, and I forgive. Forgiveness is not just refraining from actively pursuing revenge. Some people say, again, I forgive, but I'm not going to forget. That's paramount to saying, I'm not going to try to kill you, but I'll treat you as if you were dead. That's not forgiveness. Do you ever wish bad on someone who's hurt you? Someone hurts you, you wish bad on them, you tell them I forgive you, but you wish bad in your heart towards them. That's this, that's just saying, I'm not going to actively seek revenge, but I pray to God that he does that and that I can be there to watch it because I still don't like you. Forgiveness is not suspending judgment. Some people say this, I will forgive you this time. Thank you so much for asking for forgiveness. I'll forgive you this time. But if it happens again, you need to know I'm not going to forgive. That's not forgiveness because you're just saying, I've got judgment ready to be given to you. I'm just not going to give it to you this time. I'll give it to you another time. Forgiveness isn't being condescending in your mercy. Forgiveness isn't saying, I forgive you, but in reality, what you're saying is, I'm so glad I'm not like you, right? I'm so glad I don't do those things. And you're such a sorry, pathetic person that you need forgiveness for that thing because I would never do anything like that. Forgiveness is not abandoning justice. Tim Keller says, quote, justice is calling the wrongdoer to admit the sin to God and to the wronged and to bear whatever penalty either God's law or human law requires. Justice is pursued for God's sake, for other potential victims' sake, and even for the perpetrator's sake. It's never loving to allow someone to go on sinning in a grievous way, as Galatians 6.1 says. People tend to either seek personal revenge in the belief that that's justice or not seek any justice at all. One is vindictiveness and the other cowardice. So forgiveness is not saying, you know, I'm going to abandon and trying to find justice for this. Forgiveness is also not granting immediate trust. Sometimes people think that forgiveness means you immediately resume that relationship with the wrongdoer at the level that you had before the wrong was done. But until there are deeds appropriate to repentance, then it would be foolishness to trust that person. And in all honesty, sometimes you enable their sin by just going right back to the way things were. Again, Tim Keller says, quote, "'Infamously, many churches have fully restored molesters to places of trust and authority because they say that this is what forgiveness entails. But Jesus did not automatically restore Peter without a well-known and thorough process in John 21. You remember that. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Trust must be restored, but the speed at which this occurs depends on the response of the offender to correction.'" So if you are to forgive, number one, you have to look at that person that hurt you and identify yourself with them. You're in the boat with them. They're your brother, they're your sister, and you're no better than they are. And you need just as much grace as they do. So you put yourself in their shoes and you identify with them. Secondly, you inwardly pay the debt. You don't excuse the sin. You don't abandon justice. You don't just say nothing ever happened. You don't deny it. No, you, you seek forgiveness in your heart, pay the debt, wear the hurt, And then you move forward in love, and that leads to number three, a third way that we are to forgive. We must will good for the wrongdoer. We must will good in our hearts, willing and desiring good for the wrongdoer. This is kind of a test. If you've identified with the wrongdoer and you've begun the process of inwardly paying down the debt, then you're freed to just will good for them. You love them. You want good to happen to them. We can do this in a couple different ways. One way is to remember that the enemy is not the person, the enemy is the sin that they committed. By the way, um, married couples, this is really helpful in marriage. Don't look at the other person as your enemy. The sin that they're struggling with is your enemy. But you guys are on the same team. Hold hands, you're on the same team, and fight your enemy, which is sin. The other person isn't the enemy. Don't fight them. Same thing in interpersonal relationships. We're on the same team, we're not each other's enemies. Sin is the enemy. So fight the sin and don't fight the person. But a second way we practically will good for the other person, that we we desire good for them, is pray for them. Pray for them. Instead of being vengeful and making the situation all about you or being withdrawn, which again is making the situation all about you, pray for that person. Give that hurt to God. Say, God, you need to help me with this. If you resent them on the inside, but you stay courteous to them on the outside, That's not genuine forgiveness. You're not willing good for them in your heart. That's just playing a game. That's being fake. You're called to forgive on the inside so that then you can speak truth in love on the outside. And prayer is so helpful in this. This is what Jesus did. Remember Jesus uh, told us to do this. Matthew 5 verse 44, pray for your enemies. And then he showed us how to do that on the cross. You remember as he's being crucified, he cries out, father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. They had not asked for forgiveness. They had not repented. Jesus had not confronted them, but he forgives in his heart towards them. Stephen does the same thing, praying and asking God, Father, forgive them as he's being stoned to death. You might say, yes, but what if I don't feel like forgiving? I don't really feel like it. Well, forgiveness is often granted before you feel it. Forgiveness is often granted before it's felt. Forgiveness is a promise that we make To our feelings. It's a practice before it's ever a feeling. peacemakers. uh, Ministry says. That forgiveness is a a fourfold promise. Forgiveness is a promise. That you will not dwell on the incident. You're not going to bring it up to the person again. Or use it against them. You're not going to talk to others about the offense. And you're not going to let the offense stand. Between the person. Or hinder the relationship. So you don't make cutting remarks. You don't demand or control the other person. You don't punish with self-righteousness or that prideful sense of I'm better than you. You don't avoid them. You're not cold. You're not you know subtly indifferent to them. And you, you promise in your heart and willing good to the other person that I'm not going to bring this up with you. I forgive you. I love you. I want good for you. And we do that with our own hearts. We do that as we speak to others. We do that as we speak to the Lord. This is this is impossible to do. You think about that. Somebody hurts you. I want you to think about the ways that you've been hurt. Just even this last year. You've been hurt in real ways. We have gone through deep hurt and offense. And God would ask us this morning, number one, identify yourself with them. Don't stay distant. you know better than they are. Number two, you need to pay the debt down in your heart now. You need to pay for them. Number three, you need to will good for them. You need to ask the Lord to, to bless them, to do good to them. That's why the disciples say, in response to Jesus saying these things, that's why they say increase our faith. We can't do that. There's no, you're asking us to do that? There's no way we can do that. Leon Morris sums it up well when he says, Jesus' answer turns them from the thought of a less and more about faith to that of faith's genuineness. If there is real faith, then effects will follow. It's not so much great faith in God that's required, rather faith in a great God. That's why he goes in the mustard seed analogy. He goes into, no, you just need a little bit of faith. You don't need greater faith. You need a tiny bit of faith that's rooted in me. So we've looked at the text, we've looked at some practical ways that we can live this out, three ways that we can live out forgiveness, and now I just want to ask the question, when forgiveness seems impossible, what are the resources that we have around us, within us, that God has given to us to be able to forgive the way God demands? I want to give you two of them. First, we already looked at it. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, God is a perfect judge. One of the ways that you can forgive from your heart, fully towards the other person, is God is a greater judge than you are. That's why Paul says, leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Brothers and sisters, no one is getting away with anything. No one is getting away with anything. Often in our relationships, we feel like someone's getting away with it. That's why I need to let other people know. That's why I need to bring uh, the revenge here because you're getting away with it. Hey, they might get away with it their entire life. They will not get away with it. In the afterlife. And either their sin is thrown on Christ at the cross, just like yours was, or they will experience hell for all of eternity under the just punishment that God would give. So, forgiveness may seem impossible when you realize, you know what, I don't need to be the judge, jury, and executioner here. God's a greater judge than I am. You can give it to Him. But, secondly, and this is where I want to land in our time this morning, we have the resources to forgive like this. Because we've been forgiven like this. Turn to Matthew 18. You know this passage. You're familiar with this passage. Matthew 18, very similar passage to Luke 17. Verse 21, Peter comes up to Jesus. After Jesus had just said, when you know, your brother sins against you, go, show him his fault. Go tell him, go confront and try to restore and reconcile. And if they hear you you won your brother, and if they haven't, you're going to go through these processes that we would call church discipline. And Peter, verse 21, Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter comes up and says, Lord, how often shall I, uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Do, do I do this up to seven times? And I think Peter's probably thinking that's a high number. Like I should probably only have to forgive once, maybe twice, maybe three if I'm a really good guy, but seven times, no way. I think Peter is expecting Jesus's response to be, no, that's overkill, just three. Jesus says to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. He just says, just keep going, just keep forgiving. And then he gives the parable that you know. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents. A talent is the largest amount of currency that you could have back then. And 10,000 is a common way to express an infinite number. It'd be like us saying a bajillion, right? That's not an actual number, but we're trying to say this is an incomprehensible number. So this is a number that this man could never repay. But he doesn't have the means to repay. Of course he doesn't. Verse 25. So his Lord commands him to be sold along with his wife and children. All that he had and repayment be made. And the slave fell to the ground. Was prostrating himself before him. Saying have patience with me. I will repay everything. And feeling compassion. The Lord of that slave released him. And forgave him the debt. But that slave went out. And found one of his fellow slaves. So we've got king to slave relationship. Now we've got slave to slave relationship. He owed him 100 denarii. 100 denarii. A denarii is a day's wage. So That's 100 days of working. A little over three months, right? This is, this is not a bajillion dollars, but it's also not nothing. It's not nothing. It's not pennies. And the man seizes him and begins to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, was pleading with him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay everything. Literally the same words that the man had said to the king. He should have heard those words ringing in his ears. But verse 30, he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. They came and they reported to the king all that had happened. And summoning him, the king said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each one does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, there's a lot here. I mean, this is a sermon in and of itself. But I just want to highlight the resource that we have in being able to forgive others. When you feel like I could never forgive them, remember how impossible it was that Jesus would ever forgive you. Jesus never exacted payment for the debt that you owe against him. Instead, he paid the debt himself with his own life. So what right do we have to exact payment from others, demand payment from others? If God has so lavished us with the riches of his love, he's given us his love, then we have been given the riches to be able to give love to others. Think about it. At the cross, what God does for us is not only remove the debt that we owe and pay it in full, it is finished at the cross, but he also lavishes his love upon us. He he puts uh, the, the dollar bills of his love into our pockets so that we become billionaires of God's love. We've been lavished the love of God upon us so that we have a bajillion dollars of God's love. So think about this, in relationships, if you have $5 to your name, 5 bucks in your pocket, that's all you've got, you're walking down the street, going to buy a meal with the last $5 you have, and somebody robs you, and they take the $5, that's catastrophic. You have lost all of your money. But if you have a bajillion dollars, and somebody takes 5 bucks, you can go, take it. I, I don't need it, take it. You can talk to them. You can say, hey, you shouldn't steal, but I can give you money. I have money. As believers, we don't have $5 of spiritual resources in our pockets. We have an infinite supply of spiritual resources given to us. So, people around us should not be able to ruin us, bankrupt bankrupt us, or rob us of our wealth in Christ. If you ever find yourself struggling to forgive. There's a lot of things going on, but one of them is you're not clinging to the resources of God's love and seeing how much he's forgiven you that you have all the resources needed to forgive others. Nobody can outsteal the wealth that you have in God's love. So we've seen the text, Luke 17. We've seen three ways we can practically apply what forgiveness looks like in our lives. We've seen the motivation, the resources. We, we can't go demand payment from others and not pay it ourselves when we've been forgiven by God a greater debt than anyone. And just think about every single human being and all of the offenses that you will ever receive in your entire life. All of the offenses from every single person that will offend you in your entire life. Add them all up, put them on the scales, on the balancing scales on one side and put one of your sins against God on the other side. And it outweighs all of it, throws all of those off. And God says, I'll forgive all of your sins. We cannot go with a judgmental spirit, revenge in our heart, bitterness, and anger to other people. So I just want to ask you this question. Who is there in your life that you have not forgiven the way that God's called you to forgive? Who is there in your life that you might still be harboring bitterness and resentment toward? Is there anyone you need to talk to today? Who can you talk to today and say, I've still been bitter. I've still been struggling. I've still been angry. And we're going into a new year, and I don't want it's what I emailed our church. Life is too short to have these relationships that are broken beyond repair. Again, if it's possible with you, be at peace with them. There are some people that will not make it possible for peace, but we should be peacemakers as much as it's possible with us. Brothers and sisters, I don't want if there's anybody here in our church family that struggles, you're struggling with, with bitterness, with lack of forgiveness. I don't want that to happen here. I don't want it to happen in your families, in your friendships, work relationships. Who is it that the Lord would maybe be impressing upon your heart even now? I have to begin by doing these three things. I have not been identifying with them myself. I've been standing away from them. I've been looking down on them, and I need to stop doing that. I haven't inwardly paid the debt. I'm still demanding things from them. I'm not willing good for them at all. I'm hoping the worst for them. May the Lord convict us, challenge us, comfort us, encourage us, and lead us in the everlasting way. Ordinarily, this process is slow, methodical, arduous, difficult, challenging, painful. But sometimes it's instant. Maybe even this morning, it will be instant for some of you to say, I'm done. I don't want to be bitter anymore. I'm done being angry. I'm done being resentful. I'm done. And so as we wrap up, I want to just read a story that is probably familiar to many of you. Corey Ten Boom, a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews and helped them escape during the Nazi occupation of Netherlands in World War II, told a story uh, in her book, The Hiding Place, 1972, um, about Everything that transpired. Her and her sister Betsy were caught and taken to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Betsy died. Corey Tambum survived. When she got out in 1947, Corey went to Germany on a speaking tour, telling people about her story, her testimony, and the gospel. At one of those meetings, she said to the audience that through Jesus Christ, God has thrown all of our sins into the bottom of the sea. At the end of the meeting, while people were leaving, she saw a man walking toward her whom she recognized. She says this, quote, This man had been a guard at Ravensbrook concentration camp, where we were sent. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of her skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt, and now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. The man said, a a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that as you said, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. Though he did not recognize Corey as having been one of the prisoners, he was asking this woman for confirmation that his sins committed at that concentration camp could be forgiven, with his hand outstretched to shake hers. It was the first time she had met any of her former captors, and so, as Corey says it, quote, the woman herself who had just given a speech about God's forgiveness was keeping her hand in her pocket. She couldn't do it. She couldn't reach out and shake this man's hand. He then told her that he had been a guard at Ravensbrook and that he had turned to Christ afterward and had sought forgiveness for, quote, all the cruel things that I did there. But this didn't help Corey at all. She says this, I stood there, I, whose sins had to be forgiven every day." But I couldn't forgive him. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death just simply by asking? She stood there, his hand thrust out, her hand unmoving. But Corey remembered what she knew about Christian forgiveness, Christ's forgiveness. She knew she had to do it. She had seen many people post World War II who were not forgiving. And as she said, through their bitterness, remained invalids, so she knew that, quote, forgiveness was not an emotion, but rather an act of the will. So she prayed, Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. She describes the account, quote, and so woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, and as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all of my heart. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. There's a danger in the story because we might think, well, that's how it's always going to be when I forgive. And that's why I say forgiveness is usually slow, methodical, arduous, painful but sometimes it's like this. She ends the story by saying this, quote, I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior. I can only draw them fresh from God each day. So let's draw fresh from God, feasting on him, Let's draw mercy, grace. Let's go back to that fountain where we were forgiven and take that forgiveness and let it flow from us to others this morning. Father, we thank you so much for your word for a new year where we can think deeply soberly about relationships and really ask you to work in our hearts to repair where there's been damage, to reconcile, to help us to restore. God, may your spirit convict even as we sing and as we prepare our hearts now to partake of communion which reminds us of the forgiveness that we have in Christ. May we feast on you in such a way where living water would flow up in us to spill over. That we would plead with others to run to the bread of life where we have been forgiven and where we can turn and forgive others. Thank you for your amazing love. May we live in it this day. May we remember the good of the gospel right now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And then may we go from here, motivated, freshly aware of the sin that's in our heart, motivated to go be forgiving. And may forgiveness be a word that would just kind of reign over us this year as an umbrella word that everything we do would be lived out of a heart of compassion and forgiveness. We love you and we pray it in your name. Amen.